Welcome to Civil War or Civil Discussion, a podcast by the Interactivity Foundation, which aims to engage citizens in conversations about public policy and public life. In today's episode, we will share two conversations we recently had with folks working on the ground in Chicago and Detroit. First up, we'll hear from IF fellow Sue Goodney Lee and a recent conversation with Maya Lee, no relation, who recently participated in a 2019 Chicago community discussion project. The goal was to get Chicagoans to decide the agenda for the next big local election. So IF teamed up with the McCormick Foundation, City Bureau, and Ballotpedia. Let's listen to what they had to say. I'm here with Maya Lee, uh, who's been working with us on a collaborative project between Interactivity Foundation and Ballotpedia in Chicago. And she's here to tell us more about how that went. Welcome, Maya. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. And I'm very pleased to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your recent work in Chicago? I was asked to recruit a total of 48 disengaged Chicago residents, uh, not necessarily citizens, between the ages of 14 and as old as they could possibly be, to form into groups of six to eight people to talk about issues in the upcoming Chicago city elections. And these are people who don't vote for various reasons. So it was challenging, to put it mildly, to convince them that A, they could trust me and trust these two organizations, Interactivity Foundation and Ballotpedia, with whom they had no relationship. And also that they were going to be heard. I mean, that was part of the trust issue. It was not just who was going to ask them questions and write down their answers, but who else would be in the room, what information was going to be collected about them, because a lot of these people really have had terrible experiences with not just not being heard, but being endangered by speaking up. So there were really serious trust issues involved. So beyond that, it was a question of what would I be offering them for their time? And that came down to food. So Mm -hmm. I worked very hard on the food. And Mm -hmm. as we were not paying participants, and I tried my darndest to promise them good food and then exceed their expectations. And that seemed to be a very successful strategy. So people came together in these small groups for 90-minute discussions about their concerns for both the present and especially the future of the city. And some of them have not been here very long. Some of them were recent refugees and immigrants. Some were women living in a drug rehab facility who had a variety of personal traumas that got them there. And then the other half were young, we would call it community college, most places here, they're called city college, students in a basic English class, and nearly all of them were the first in their extended families ever to go to college. So they were non-voters, not engaged in, in any civic activities, really. To my surprise, they were really eager 
to voice their opinions and they were flattered to be asked. So it was a real mixture of people and it wound up being a very positive experience, I think, for all of us, for me as their facilitator and very much for them that they could trust that they would be respected and they could make a difference in their own lives in the future and in the lives of their fellow Chicagoans. That's really interesting, especially the aspect of engaging people that are mistrustful and are often, you know, not necessarily included in these sorts of conversations, you know, that once you find a way to engage them and and we have long found that food is a great way, you know, that's been in kind of a, a founding cornerstone of our organization from the get-go is, you know, there's something about breaking bread together that overcomes various social boundaries and silos and, um, you know, lends itself towards civility. And and it just acknowledges, you know, the humanity and, you know, time that, you know, someone is taking and trust, as you, you know, really nicely point out. And was that, you know, in part the goal of engaging people who were more disengaged? Well, I think that's what set this project apart was that it wasn't It wasn't just the usual suspects, uh, the people who are already engaged. It was specifically designed to capture 50% participation from people who don't participate in this kind of activity at all. That's what made it really tough because they're disengaged for good reasons. And overcoming those obstacles was extremely labor-intensive, time-intensive, And it felt precarious until I actually got people in a room with me. It felt as if at any moment people could get cold feet and not show up or could show up and and not engage with me and with the other people in the room. It really felt like a high wire act in ways that it would not have had I been talking to people who are already community activists. You know, how did you become interested in working on these sorts of issues? Well, I am the granddaughter of Jewish immigrants. So I have, I think as part of my birthright, an understanding Mm -hmm. of what it feels like not to be welcome and not to be able to control my political destiny and the political destiny of my community. So I, I think I get it in a certain sense about not being heard. Uh, I'm also female. And as you probably know, and as perhaps half of your listeners know, that also trains you in being devoiced. You know, if you if you ask one question that's usually acceptable and occasionally considered cute, if you keep asking questions, then you're considered to be either obstreperous or domineering or um, selfish. So I wanted very much in this project, without excluding men at all, I wanted to really try to overrepresent women because I think their voices are underrepresented in most political discourse. Yeah, yeah, that's, I would say is, is probably true. What would you say is the most surprising thing you learned in this project? How incredibly difficult it is to overcome certain cultural barriers. I have been a volunteer 
mentor to refugees for the past three years. Mm-hmm. And I thought that my Syrian refugee families were a shoe in to be eager to participate. And they were the toughest nut of all to, to crack. Uh, there's so much uh, fear because of the trauma they've experienced during the war and in refugee camps. And they're also terrified of wearing out their welcome here. Not that it's been uh, so welcoming um, in the last few years, but they are terrified of being sent away again. And there's also the gender dynamics that Muslim women are really, really uh, closeted and unseen, unheard in ways that we as American women, despite what I just said about devoicing that, that <laughs> place in, in many of our lives, we as American women at least have it as an aspiration, as a goal that we will be heard equally and be represented equally in the political process. Muslim women from conservative families and conservative cultures don't have that expectation, even aspirationally. And so I was dealing with women who were very tentatively willing to participate, but needed to get permission from a man. So at first, I was flummoxed by the no, and I was angry, and my reaction was, well, after all I've done for you, you know, this is the only thing I've ever asked you to do for me. Why can't you do it? And I'm, I'm buying you a nice meal, and, and no, why can't you do this? So it took me, took me a lot of talking myself down from my high horse and working on really empathizing with those fears and those inhibitions to find ways to work around that no, to get that to soften into a maybe, and then eventually to a yes. That was quite a process, and I learned a lot from it. But that was the most surprising thing for me, was how hard it was to try to get any Muslim women, not just Muslim women I knew. I I worked with a young woman who wears a headscarf and teaches at the city college, uh, and it was her students in the basic English class who were part of my groups. She herself wanted to participate. I asked her to try to recruit her family members for me. She said in all her wide circle of extended family and and social networks, she thought maybe she could get one or two yeses out of all of those Muslim women. And again, that was a shock. Uh, I didn't know that even among educated Muslim women who were not wearing a full hijab, just a headscarf, that still the social prohibitions were that strong. And that just made me want to get these voices out into the conversation even more. Mm -hmm. Because it, it just seemed even more important to try to find ways around those taboos. The whole project for me was two months long, the first month recruiting and the second month uh, with discussions going on. And mm-hmm. so it felt extremely pressurized to uh, try to get my Syrian refugee families to come on board. It felt like a real squeaker uh, mm-hmm. to the very end, but 
I got an awful lot of positive feedback from them since. So I think I think it was a, a success in American democracy for all of us and mm -hmm. in also a window into how it feels to be that much of an outsider here. Yeah, that is really interesting. We talk a lot about, you know, the empathy that our participants gain and, you know, we've, we've done some research on this and we know, you know, from surveys and, and things that there is a real impact to participating in an exploratory discussion with people that you don't normally sit down with. But I don't know that we've given a whole lot of thought to, you know, the empathy that you might gain as a facilitator, trying to bring people to the table and then listening to conversations with people in groups that you think you know well. We have another interview this episode with um, a woman in Detroit who's actually a friend of mine from middle school days who's been talking with you know young people about going to college and their parents and educators, you know, looking at, you know, first in the family to college folks, you know, why aren't they going? And there was a lot of things that I thought were true. Uh, like, oh, well, they're just anti-intellectual. They don't want to go. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be completely wrong. You know, I like how you articulated, like having to kind of look inside yourself. And, you know, it's really humbling to, you know, need to stand back and, you know, realize that you don't know everything you thought you knew right. about the people that you right. thought you knew. And, you right. know. and some of the things you thought you knew are even worse in terms of the mm -hmm. layers of trauma. For me, the scariest group was the women in drug rehab because they more than the more than the Syrian refugees felt alien to me, and I'm embarrassed to be saying that, especially to a large audience, but I needed a friend to coach me through my preparation process because I went in with a lot of stereotypes that were extremely off base. And again, it was about fear. What my friend said was that I needed to realize how afraid these people were likely going to be. And I was like, no, 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 I'm the one who's afraid of them. <laughs> yeah, as you say, it was a deep dive into examining one's own preconceptions and inhibitions and where, where my fears lay. Mm -hmm. And what I needed to do to meet people at least halfway, um, that I, in order for them to be able to trust me, that I needed to change first. Well, it's been so interesting talking with you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, I really have enjoyed it immensely. And thank you for taking the time. Again, this has been Maya Lee. No relation. We both <laughs> have the same last name spelled the same way, but no actual relation. You know, it's been a pleasure hearing from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure has been mine. The Chicago Project was significant in several ways. The most important one was that we, with the help of Allopedia, reached a very wide audience. Up until the present time, IF has reached perhaps 5,000 individuals with our face-to-face -face discussions, which, as we've commented on in previous podcasts, have been very successful. The Chicago Project, on the other hand, will be seen by, or the results will be seen by, perhaps 100,000 Chicago voters. So the reach of that project exceeded by several orders of magnitude, the reach that IF has had in its first 12 years of existence. Secondly, our discussions were through the Chicago project connected to residents' actual behaviors, namely in the form of voting, in a way that IF discussions typically are not. 
we conduct our discussions and hope and expect, and our data shows that, in fact, this is true, that people learn through the discussions, but we do not encourage them or expect that they will be altered in their actual behaviors, though our data shows that that's typically the case. We don't encourage people to connect the discussions with actual behavioral choices that they make. In the Chicago project, the results of the discussions were posted online so that voters seeking that information could use the information to inform their votes. So the project allowed us to connect discussions very directly with uh, individuals' behaviors. And so the reach of the project and its connection with actual action on the part of citizens were both important features of the project. I'm wondering, Adolf, if you can say a little bit about using the if process, imbuing that into what Ballotpedia already does, which a lot of people are probably familiar with Ballotpedia. If anyone's ever looked up local people running in a school board, for instance, you know, on a Google search, often Ballotpedia results will come up to give people some context for who those folks are and, and what they think about various issues. But they're collaborating with if is a bit of a different direction for their organization as well. You know, what do you feel like the if process adds to the material that they generate? Well, I'll answer that with Ballotpedia's CEO and president's own words. She said, we at Ballotpedia are journalists and we think we're pretty good journalists. In fact, she's right about that because almost a quarter of the American electorate tapped Ballotpedia for electoral information during this past midterm election. But Ballotpedia, she says, is not in the business of discussion. And so Ballotpedia was on the lookout for experts in the discourse or discussion realm and came to us through NCIV, actually. It was Will Ferguson that connected Ballotpedia with IF. IF recognized that Ballotpedia could allow it to scale up its efforts and reach more people, while Ballotpedia recognized that they needed experts in discussion to elicit electoral information from citizens directly rather than have journalists or candidates elicit that information. So Ballotpedia wanted a discursive partner while IF wanted a journalistic partner. Currently, this is been designated under a fancy new kind of jargon term called infogagement. But Ballotpedia was way ahead of the curve in seeking out an opportunity to engage in that kind of effort and identified if as a ready partner with the help of NSIS Will Ferguson. The other thing I'd like to hear a little bit about is, you know, what challenges and what lessons did you gain from what was a massive organizing effort in a very short amount of time? But the undertaking was was massive in terms of the number of people engaged, talked with, interviewed um, in these facilitated discussions on the ground and in online spaces. What did you learn from all of that? Because it was much bigger undertaking than you know we've previously done at IF. Having just finished writing up a narrative and sort of empirical description of the project. I can tell you that we learned no less than 15 separate lessons from conducting the project, some of which were already based on an earlier iteration of the 
Chicago project, which we ran in Des Moines, Iowa in the fall of 2017. So this project was already based on and incorporated a number of earlier lessons learned, but we learned a ton more. And the main one, I would say, of those 15, the single most important lesson was that it is difficult to recruit citizens for even the most promising and impactful citizen engagement effort. We tend to think of citizen engagement as intrinsically valuable at if we think that our work matters and we think people ought to engage in it because it's useful in its own right. Well, the Chicago project not only was useful, but also useful to voters. And so it had a kind of double payoff. Nevertheless, it's difficult to attract participants to such a project because they're busy, they have other demands on their time, and sometimes there are technological challenges as well. So recruiting the next time we do this will garner much more of our attention and we'll have to spend more time working to get people on the ground who can directly recruit people for us. That was the biggest challenge, and that's what we've got to work on the next time we do this. Nevertheless, we were successful in getting enough people. It's just we've got to work harder at that part of it the next time. Well, thank you so much for telling us about that. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the results, and I'm sure that we'll get a count at the end of the day of how many people actually access the results of the project. But we succeeded in getting a very rich set of questions that Ballotpedia will put to the candidates and whose responses will be posted online. And we're very confident about the rank ordering of those questions in terms of which ones participants thought were most important. So the confidence in the questions and their relative importance to participants is very high, and we can be very happy about that. That's awesome. Sue, you recently spoke to Elaine Bassett, who is integral to our efforts in Detroit. I'd love to hear more about your conversation with Elaine. I'm here with Elaine Bassett, who's a facilitator for the Interactivity Foundation, working on the ground in Detroit, Michigan, more specifically in the suburb of Warren, Michigan. Welcome, Elaine. Hi, how are you? Can you tell us a little bit about your recent work in Detroit? I've been uh, working with first-generation college students, which is to say students who have not had someone in their family go to college before, and they would be the first one. It's been interesting interviewing the high school students who are that perspective. So tell us about the project and how it's been working and you know some of the different folks that you've been talking with. I've been talking with a lot of different high school students. I've been talking with college counselors and high school counselors and teachers to find out exactly what the perspective is on college right now. We've been doing focus groups, getting together and sharing a meal and discussing exactly what college means and what it's being interpreted as. And kids are saying exactly what they think it is as far as it is a four-year program, but what do they get out of it? What is it based on what the cost that they're prepared to put in and what can they get out of it in the end? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think a lot of people have right now. Do they seem to have a good sense of you know, how to get into a four-year program or whether or not to start at a community college or, you know, what's your sense of, you know, how people are understanding that? Most students are pretty lost, actually. 
they understand the tests that you take to get in that are directed through the high school. But as far as submitting applications, writing essays, applying for funding, filling out the federal financial aid form, most of them are pretty lost. And even in parent involvement, one of the things that comes up as a barrier is discussing money. Because kids aren't declared independent, they have to use their parents' financial aid information in order to qualify. There becomes a discussion as to how much money do you have, mom and dad? And for some reason, it does, it puts up barriers, you know, why do you need to know? How much do you need to take? You know, and a lot of parents have retirement on their, on their mind. So it becomes a double-edged sword. They're trying to pay for something in the future for themselves also. I had no idea what my parents made until actually I went to college and, you know, filled out some forms and things. But before that, I had no idea. And even when I saw I didn't have a context of, you know, whether that was a lot or a little or, you know, I just had no idea. Absolutely. And kids today, I think, do have a better sense. A lot of high school programs have a early college entrance program also. So it gives the kids a chance to explore some things in college at the high school cost, Mm -hmm. being that the high school picks up the cost. And I think that's freeing in that it gives them a chance to do a little bit of exploring without a financial burden. Yeah, because that's been one of the more interesting things was, you know, how reticent young folks are and, and their parents to, to take risks. Like it feels like a big risk to go to college without knowing exactly what you're going to do and, you know, having a very firm plan. And boy, you better not mess up class because it's so expensive. And right, so- gone are the days that you could play and skip around and you know, you went to that keg party and suddenly you can't go to history. Yeah. You know, gone are those days because it is. It's just so expensive and it's so competitive. You know, that's also another point. If you don't want to be there in that class to go get that job, someone else does. What's been the most surprising thing you've learned from all this so far? It's surprising to me how much the kids want to know as far as career planning and they don't get in high school and then they're just adrift. You know, what would you say some of your successes or challenges have been so far? Challenges is writing fast enough to get all the opinions down. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it is. I I actually sat in on one of your discussions early on and um, I had the same challenge. In fact, that group of students knew one another and they were actually, a number of them were, were quite close friends. And they said, you right. know, we've never talked about this amongst ourselves before. You know, it's like something nobody ever talks about, but, you know, have all these like anxieties and thoughts about. And so when you ask about it, this like, you know, wall of energy opens up and, you know, people have a lot to say. One of my successes is that a number of those kids have come back now to talk to me about college planning. Oh, awesome. We had planned to sit down and have dinner again, and it has just worked out that they have stopped by at different times, several of them recently, because college plans are coming up to register for classes for winter. Mm-hmm. So they stopped by to review their college plans, and several of them let me know that they had made appointments with their college advisors to discuss transferring to other universities when the time comes. So they've taken steps forward where they know they can. I was wondering yeah. you know, about that. And that's really exciting to hear that that's happening. So deadlines are usually in middle of January. Are any of them planning to apply 
to a, you know, like a four-year type of college or university, you know, for next year? One of the young ladies is. This has been her second year at a community college. She's planning on it, but she's planning on a local four-year university. Like she wants to go to U of D Mercy just to save the cost of room and board and things like that so she can travel back and forth with her own car. And there's a lot of great universities right there locally. Right. Yeah. Wayne State has come up. Uh, U of M has extension centers. There's a bevy of choices. You know, how do you expect that this project, you know, will have an impact in the future? I think it's going to teach us a lot about how to talk to kids about education and the level at what we need to start talking to them about it. If funding is the issue, I think the talk needs to start in preschool. And we need to encourage parents to participate in state funding programs to pay for college education and to help them understand that if their child chooses not to use it, they don't lose it. That's a very popular misconception. I think, yeah, that's one of the most interesting things in doing all this is that I think we've identified a lot of misconceptions that that, the young people have, the parents have, and I think that policymakers have, honestly. I carried around a lot of ideas and beliefs that I've learned are not true at all. Like one of the things that I thought for a long time was, oh, you know, people from where I come from, they're just anti-intellectual. They don't want to go to college. Well, that got blown out of the water the first meeting when it became (laughs) these kids all want to go to college. They just have no idea how to do it. You know, so one thing that I, you know, envision is, you know, having this be a prototype to put in front of a place like Gates or Lumina Foundation who've been working in this area for years with limited success. Lumina had a goal of sending, I think it was 25 or 30% of the U.S. population. Maybe it was 50%. It was a fairly ambitious goal. They wanted to see this large percentage of Americans graduating with a four-year degree by you know 2020, I think, was their deadline. And they scrapped it about a year ago. Um, as I said, you know, there's no way we're going to make this goal. And I think one of the issues is, is they're not having the kinds of conversations that I think we're learning, you know, we need to be having, you know, on the These ground. These kids need to be engaged at eighth grade. Yes. Yeah. And some of the more interesting and successful college-bound programs start exactly in eighth grade. I and mean, those tend to be targeted more in urban areas like Baltimore, Washington, D.C. has a phenomenal one. And they start in eighth grade and they connect kids with a mentor and they meet once a week and, you know, they work on homework, they build a relationship, they talk about, you know, they just talk about college and they spend time together and they have like a 96% success rate of getting kids into college and almost all of them go through college, you know, and I think we need things like that to be much bigger. I mean, there's like different pieces of the puzzle are there. Like, you know, there's counselors at the schools, there's admission counselors at the community colleges and universities. You've engaged some of them in these discussions. There's teachers that have an interest in care, but like the pieces just don't get put together, you know, in a way that's more student-centered. Correct. These kids don't get the whole package is the way to look at it. It needs to start in eighth grade with high school planning They need to have someone who follows through with them that's not just a parent. It's critical, I think, to have someone else who's been through it and who's done it. If they have a parent who's also been through it and done it, then they're blessed. But I think it's important to have an outside mentor just to keep them in touch with the forces of the universities and things like that. 
Yeah. And that was one of the things that, you know, several of the kids um, in the discussion that I was uh, sitting in on, I remember one of the, the kids was like, wow, imagine having a mentor just devoted to you and your success. Imagine. You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like a hard work mentor. That sort of thing exists. And so I guess that's our, our next uh, job is to make this a stepping stone to, you know, building some infrastructures like that. It would be beneficial. You know my son Nash from the discussion. Uh-huh. The school that he goes to, the counselors are all about them, know them all personally. The kids have to do personal projects. And they average about a 99% college acceptance rate and completion rate. These kids identify, well, starting in ninth grade, they have extension projects mm-hmm. that encourage them to experience different things. Like Nash learned to play the ukulele. Just <laughs> something he wanted to do. And it was his personal project. And it was something that he taught himself. Uh, he had a couple lessons. But these kids get the attention and the detail that you need to be mentored towards college. It's a stepping stone process. It's mm-hmm. not just graduate from high school and go to college. They don't know how to do it. There's multiple steps that are taken before the end of high school for college. And I think right. these kids don't get, yeah, they don't get the fundamentals. When the college admissions counselors come for tours, they come with beautiful pictures and brochures and things like that. You and I know there's much more to college than that. Yes. And uh, we're really learning, you know, a lot of pretty basic things that, you know, could be done to make a world of difference. Like the, the program Nash is in is, you know, targeted as, you know, a magnet type of school for talented kids. Um, and I think sometimes we focus too much on, you know, and we should develop those kids for sure. But I think you know, if we threw that sort of resource at all the kids, many, many more of them would, you know, not get sort of to that point of just being annoyed with school. You know, like a lot of the kids that get into trouble in school often are bored. And so if we had more of those resources, we would probably have much better outcomes for a whole lot more kids, you know, which would be a great investment for us as a society. So... I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about what you've been doing. It's really interesting work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was nice talking with you and I enjoy the work I'm doing. So I hope to do more. And this has been Elaine Bassett, who's a facilitator working with uh, the Interactivity Foundation in the Detroit area. So the project in Detroit has been really interesting. I grew up in Detroit and kind of like the story you told in the last episode about your connection with Will and reconnecting with someone that you knew much earlier in life. I had the same sort of connection going back with Elaine, not quite so far. Um, I've known her since middle school, but, you know, she's been a close friend for, for many years. And, you know, like with a lot of friends from youth, you come in and out of contact. But one thing that we share in common is that we were both the first ones in our family to go to university. You know, we come from a place, Detroit, the white working class suburbs as well, are not places where a lot of folks just naturally are inclined to go to college. And so the fact that we did both manage to do that was something that, you know, we realized as we aged, you know, was kind of exceptional from the context of where we grew up. And we both sort of developed a passion for wanting to see more people go to college. And I've been back in Detroit quite a bit lately. 
my mom's been having some health issues and you know, I've reconnected with Elaine. And I also simultaneously was wrapping up a project I had been working on at if exploring ways of promoting the success of first-generation college students. And I, of course, when I would see Elaine, I was telling her about this project. And, and one morning I awoke and my subconscious said to me, hey, you know, Elaine is really well-placed to be having discussions of this guide as we were in the process of wanting to test the guide. And I thought, oh, you know, that's a brilliant idea. I bet she'd be great at this. And she's fantastic. You know, as we can see in the clip, that she brings a lot of passion to it and just has a natural penchant for, you know, facilitating the kinds of dialogues that we do that are very exploratory and encompass a range of different points of view. And she also just has really deep connections to a wide range of working class folks in the area where we grew up you know, who have different experiences around college. Many didn't go, many want their kids to go, but they don't know how to go. Many uh, young people want to go, they have no idea what they're doing, they don't know how to get there. The discussions have actually proved really interesting and insightful. This is a topic I've thought about for years and thought I knew a lot about, and I have carried a lot of assumptions about why people don't want to go to college that I think a lot of people, you know, who do have a college education are, are maybe in more affluent pockets of the country, more educated pockets of the country tend to think of people in, you know, working class Detroit or Appalachia or different places like this as just anti-intellectual and they don't want to go to school and they don't, you know, want to be educated. And actually that's, we learned that that's not true at all. In fact, the young people really do want to go to college, but they're getting virtually no guidance as to how to do that. And the people working in the guidance space don't really know how to connect with the young people in meaningful ways. And they also carry some of the same kinds of assumptions. And so there's a real disconnect in how do we get from point A to point B. And so some young people get to community college, but then they have no idea how to transition to a four-year university. Some will send out an application to community college and sit and wait to hear back, realizing only much later that, oh yeah, we don't respond, everyone's admitted. Well, they don't make that clear. And so the poor students sitting there waiting for an acceptance letter before they go and register, which is not necessary at all. And so, you know, you kind of wonder, well, why are you even having an application process if everyone's admitted? So there were, um, you know, just a lot of really interesting insights. Another one that was really interesting was that, you know, making things free and a lot of places in Michigan, a lot of the universities are, they're trying to make college more affordable. So they're offering free tuition. But that actually kind of backfires with a lot of working class folks, because when they hear free, they think you're up to something. There's a deep belief of there is no such thing as a free lunch. And so what's the catch? And I don't think the folks marketing that really realize, you know, that that might be taken in that way. You know, parents want to, in many cases, see their kids go to college, but they have no idea how to make that happen. You know, so it's it's been very interesting, a lot of counterintuitive things that we've been learning. And so I've, I've just loved watching this unfold, you know, in a place that I know, you know, very deeply, it's where I grew up, but yet, you know, like, oh, there's you know, things I didn't know at all, you know, and so it's been quite interesting. Uh, Sue, are there any lessons you think you learned about conducting civil discussions in a place distant from where you actually live? Yeah, actually, that's been one of the most rich and insightful parts of all this. In Elaine, actually, we're, we're now working at IF, we're working on uh, revising 
a project we had started a while ago exploring, you know, how will people retire and, you know, what will it mean to retire and what might that look like? And Elaine's been helping us do some of those exploratory discussions in Detroit because we wanted, you know, that vantage point of more of a blue collar kind of framework. And one thing that, you know, she was hearing from there and from the first generation college student discussions over and over, she keeps hearing people saying, oh my, wow, this is going to affect public policy. Oh, I'm so excited to be involved with this. You know, no one ever asked us about that. And I think that's been one of the most interesting and, you know, really moving parts of all this is a lot of times when I'm in spaces where people are talking about doing dialogue and, you know, how do we engage more people? There is a genuine motivation to want to engage more people, but there's also this kind of assumption that certain people don't really have anything to say or, you know, are just not the people for this sort of thing, you know, that they might be too conservative or they might just not be interested. And in fact, I think we're learning that they're very interested and they do want to contribute and share ideas and add to the conversation. You know, we just have to go in and figure out how to ask and, you know, find ways to engage folks, you know, meet them in their own terrain, make it convenient if they need childcare, you know, make that available provide a meal or, you know, some sort of, you know, shared resource to acknowledge, you know, that you value their time and effort. And my impression is that, you know, you, you kind of were learning the same sorts of things from the Chicago effort. And this is, you know, maybe the key takeaway from both is that a wide range of people do want to be involved. We just maybe need to make more of an effort to connect with them. If democracy means one person, one vote, Maybe it also means one person, one voice, hey? I like that. What did you find to that end in the Chicago space? I would say that you have to make it easy for people to take time out of their lives to engage in civic activity. Aristotle said this thousands of years ago, you have to have enough leisure time from your workaday world in order to participate meaningfully in politics. And I think that applies as much right now as it ever did back in ancient Greece. And one citizen, one voice. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to Civil War or Civil Discussion, a podcast of the Interactivity Foundation. I'm fellow Adolf Gunderson. And I'm fellow Suzanne Lee. You can contact us at www.interactivityfoundation.org. Thanks for listening.